Engaging conversation on the most urgent problem of our day and what you can do about it. Now, the End Abortion Podcast by Priests for Life. Friends, Father Frank Pavone here, National Director of Priests for Life, coming to you live on this Sunday night, the 1st of May. Welcome to our program, and uh, we want to talk about a lot of things tonight, whatever is on your mind included. So feel free to start telling me where you're from and uh, what's on your mind. Ask me any questions that you want or uh, or uh, comments. Any prayer intentions you have are always welcome too, because as you pray, our intention is always to include everything that you need, that your family may need, everything you may be going through. We all pray for one another. And I appreciate your prayers for me and for our team as well. So good to have you with us. Some of you are very faithful watchers with me each day for our morning mass, which when I'm not traveling, we have at 10 a.m. Otherwise, we have a a prayer service. But one way or another, we have a special prayer broadcast at 10 a.m. And then, of course, there are many other programs that we have, including Janet Morana's program, uh, which has been usually taking this 9 o'clock slot. I've been doing some uh, 7 a.m. broadcasts because we know we have a lot of our people checking in on their Facebook or YouTube or Twitter at that time of the morning. So a couple of times recently, and I will do it again uh, this week, I've gone on at 7 a.m. Eastern time. But we'll always announce this on our schedule at endabortion.tv and also in our emails. Let's begin with my book, Pro-Life Reflections for Every Day. Then I want to talk to you about the rally that just concluded about an hour ago in Nebraska with President Trump. Uh, and give you some of my observations about that. And then you're not going to want to miss a few fascinating insights we're going to talk about in regard to Roe versus Wade, which we might be days or weeks away right now from an overturn of that decision from the U.S. Supreme Court. The Dobbs case could come out any day now. And we just don't know. We have no, you know, word from the court about exactly uh, uh, when the decision is going to be. So we have to be ready at any time. So I want to share you some thoughts about that and uh, talk to you, of course, about a few new pro-life resources that we have. So stay tuned for all of this, plus, as I say, uh, your questions as well. But in my book, Pro-Life Reflections for Every Day, today is the 1st of May, and so I take the reflection from Luke chapter 1, verse 42, which says, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Reflection, May, is marked by the beautiful ceremony of the May crowning. We present to Mary, the mother of life, bouquets of flowers that represent life. By doing this, we honor Mary for saying yes to the life of God within her womb. Let us pray. Mary, we ask you today to intercede for all those who find it difficult to accept the gift of new life, whether within their own womb or in someone else. Help them to say yes. Amen. So you can get a copy of this book at ProLifeReflectionsForEveryDay.com. Speaking of pro-life prayer resources, I spent... uh, uh, some time this weekend writing 
my newest prayer booklet. And I think you know, many of you know, because you use them at the abortion mills or you use them in adoration or in your own families, the prayer booklets that we have. Now, this one we've had for many years in the palm of his hand. The book itself fits in the palm of your hand, uh, but it's prayers to end abortion. Okay. Then I came out with this one, same format, in the heart of his mercy, prayers for healing after abortion. And all of these, by the way, you can find at prolifeprayers.com. So in the heart of his mercy, prayers for healing after abortion. Then, same format, in the light of his word. Biblically-based prayers to end abortion. So I take various scripture verses and passages and draw out from them pro-life themes for pro-life prayers. And then, finally, the, the latest one as of the moment, in the power of His Spirit, prayers to the Holy Spirit to end abortion. And uh, now I'm writing the fifth one in this installment, called In the Embrace of His Mother, Marian Prayers to End Abortion. So what I actually do is I uh, once the book is written, I post the prayers on prolifeprayers.com so you'll be able to see the prayers online, and then uh, a short time after that, they'll come out in the printed book format. So that'll be number five in this series of pro-life prayer books. Then I'm going to do another one after that called In the Company of His Saints, Prayers in Honor of Different Pro-Life Saints. Okay, so that's a little bit what's going on on the, on the production front. Roe versus Wade was a mess, and I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, that. But first of all, let's see if there's any questions already that I can uh, begin to answer, because I love to hear uh, what you're all uh, saying. And uh, let's see what Walter is asking. Uh, Father, I've been watching St. Saint Mother Teresa's speeches. Okay, always a great thing to watch, right? She was very tough about saying it the way it is. Mothers killing their own babies. And forgiveness, but tough. Considering Dobbs, how are we going to do the same tell, concerning telling voters the same across the country? Well, as you know, I... I often not only repeat Mother Teresa's words, and I think we all have to do that because Mother Teresa is so venerated, even well beyond, certainly within, but even well beyond the bounds of the Catholic Church. And um, just to repeat her words, just to let people know that she said these things can be quite uh, convincing for a lot of people. She also asked me personally to distribute that prayer breakfast speech she gave in 1994 in which she used some of that tough language uh, that you uh, mentioned, uh, murder. She said it's murder by the mother herself uh, when these abortions are, are, are occurring. Now, when the Dobbs case comes out and uh, we have presumably what we expect, even more opportunity to protect the unborn by law, we're going to have to uh, speak to the lawmakers very clearly now, because actually they will now have more responsibility. Right now they can say, some of them like to use it as an excuse, but there is legitimacy when they say, well, the court has taken this out of our hands. Well, to a certain extent they have in terms of not being able to actually protect these babies. But we have to be even tougher with them if Dobbs gives them more responsibility 
a, a more ability, I should say, to protect the unborn, then they have more responsibility to do so. And then if they don't do so, they are more subject to the, uh, the guilt that they should feel when we hear Mother Teresa using this tough language about uh, abortion. Oh, Michael is asking a question. Yes, I was going to actually say something about that too. So let me address that topic. Uh, Michael is asking, what does Father th think about Biden's proposed censorship board? Yes. So Biden has announced this, what is he calling it? The uh, Dis um, Disinformation Governance Board. This is really very dangerous. This is not the government's role. The government is accountable to the truth. We all are. The church is accountable to the truth. We as individuals are accountable to the truth. The government is not the arbiter of truth. There shouldn't have to be a disinformation governance board. Every institution of government, just like every institution of academia, media, church, and everything else, has to have a built-in accountability to the truth. You don't establish... See, these, these Democrats, they love to establish government bureaucracies. They, 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 they love this. So first of all, it's an unnecessary multiplication of bureaucracy. But secondly, it is a chilling and dangerous thing when the government is setting itself up in some way to be the standard of truth. Oh, we're going to determine now what's misinformation. You don't need a special agency to do that. If you're concerned that there is misinformation out there that could affect Homeland Security, for example, well then, for goodness sake, the Department of Homeland Security stands up and says the truth and, and points out the falsehood. The same thing should be true in the Department of Defense, in the, the Department of Education, Department of Labor, the White House itself. Why are you setting up this information agency that then, you know, government overreach is such an easy temptation. All of a sudden, they're transgressing the, the, the bounds of what they were originally created to do. We see this all the time. And now they're telling you uh, uh, as fact what is just their ideology. This is, this is so dangerous and so threatening to the freedom of thought in America, the freedom of speech. If the government is going to set up an agency that's going to say, oh, here's what's true and here's what's false, well, then, of course, the next logical question is, and what's the punishment for those who say what's false? You see where we are now? The punishment of speech is inherently unconstitutional. And uh, this is that gets very close to the thought police and very, very dangerous. You know, the irony to me, though, is that here you have uh, the Democrat uh, Party putting in place this kind of, a, of an agency which operates on the presumption that there is such a thing as truth, objective truth. But this is a party that denies objective truth. There's no morality. It's all up to your own choice. 
Baby's not a baby, you know, and they, this is where the phrase, let's go Brandon, has taken up uh, its, 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 its own meaning about objecting to the party, changing, trying to change the reality of things. You know, oh, well, that they're not saying what they're really saying. They're saying, let's go, Brandon. Well, you know, that's not really a baby in the womb. It's only a baby if you think it is. That's not really a riot going on with the burning of the buildings. That's a peaceful protest. Uh, oh, this is not really a, a, a criminal. This is just uh, someone who's seeking to come into our country. You know, they can't tell the difference between a legal and an illegal immigrant, a violent riot and a peaceful protest a violence against a baby versus reproductive health. They try to redefine reality, not to mention woman and man and marriage. But the 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 and then they go to set up an agency that that is going to tell you what's true and what's not true. Very, very first of all, dangerous. Secondly, uh just I mean the arrogance here when at the same time they're not going to change their rejection of objective truth when it comes to morality and to the the very plan of God. Debbie is asking, uh, when this administration is finished in two and a half years, yikes, will their stupid laws be able to be changed back to what's right when President Trump comes back? Well, yes. Now, I was in a very interesting um uh, discussion the other day, I, I was at this conference of the America First Policy Institute. This is a policy institute. Look it up on AmericaFirstPolicy.com. Um, AmericaFirstPolicy.com. It's, a, it's an entity that was put together just in the last year by former President Trump administration people, okay, uh, to continue to build on and advance the America First policies that President Trump uh, uh, and his team, again, many of these people, put in place in the first place, and to prepare for a return of President Trump to office, which I believe will happen, and you're, you're implying here will, will happen too. He's going to run, you know, let's pray that his health continues to be as good and as strong as it is. With that in place, I don't I don't have any doubt that he's going to run. And of course, he's been been teasing the crowds uh, uh, with um, this uh, at his rallies, including uh, the one he had tonight, just a couple hours ago in Nebraska. They are already preparing policy uh, recommendations, executive orders. You know, these things take a lot of preparation and so what has to happen if an administration is going to get as much done as possible, and like you're saying, there's going to have to be a lot done to clean up the mess, to rebuild the uh, all the things that this current administration is destroying. Well, you, you can't start from ground zero on day one. You've already had you already have to have executive orders in place, policies thought through and figured out from a legal perspective, from uh, uh, all kinds of other practical perspectives. So this is part of the work that's being done right now. So that's that should be an encouragement. A lot of things can be changed by executive order. So we've seen the ping pong ball going back and forth, for example, in regard to the Mexico City policy, uh, whether we're going to fund abortions overseas, right? So President Trump didn't only restore it, 
like George W. Bush had done, et, 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 et cetera. But he expanded it. So that was one of the extra pro-life things that he did. But um, uh, he can take it that back again. He'll put that in place again. Biden, of course, uh, reversed it uh, in his uh, very first uh, very first day or two in office. But the point is that the uh, things like this, a lot of these things can be done right away by executive um, uh, power. Some of the things that are going to have to be undone, some of the damage that is going to have to be uh, repaired or are going to is going to require congressional action. And that means that obviously we have to have the House and the Senate. So it looks very good for this November. President Trump said tonight, this is, again, he emphasized the most important midterm election probably in all of American history. And uh, that's one of the reasons why, because uh, first of all, to take back the House and the Senate now puts a big roadblock in Biden's way for he's not going to be able to implement any of his extreme legislative agenda that gets stopped right away. I mean, it's difficult even now because the, 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 the majority that the Democrats have is so slim that especially in the Senate, I mean, they can't get they can't get these extreme things passed like the extreme abortion bill that passed the House. But uh, it'll be even harder than it'll be impossible uh, with a Republican House and Senate. But then it is with the Republican president combined in that mix, as you know, that will then give us the, the ability to actually pass legislation and therefore undo what the, um, uh, I like to call the Brandon administration, has been doing the damage that they have been uh, carrying out. So thanks for that uh, uh, important question. Jeannie is saying, uh, Father Frank, don't executive orders eventually have to go through uh, Congress uh, as well? Uh, no, no. Executive orders are, executive orders build on the law. Uh, in other words, the law, the, the, the president cannot create law. And that's the truth that you're, that you're getting at. The, the executive branch does not create law. And, and this, of course, is, is, is what's at issue with uh, the Trump-appointed judge in, in Florida who, uh, who did away with this, uh, the mask mandate on, on public transportation. This is, this is what the, the judge was saying is, is, wait a minute, does a federal agency have the ability to make such a sweeping policy in the first place? And the judge said, no. If, 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 in other words, if people are saying, look, you know, uh, we need this, uh, as a as a policy, well then you know, if, if the case is so persuasive, then convince the lawmakers and make a law. So the question is is not even what is being done. The question is who has the authority to do it. An executive order is executive authority. So the president, the administration of the executive branch, has the power to to implement pass and implement an executive order. Now there is a law. Okay, uh, dealing with administrative policy that talks about how the executive order is supposed to be introduced and implemented. And so, for example, one of the they have to follow when they're ex issuing these executive orders. The president just can't get up one day and write, you know, write out a memo and say, "Here, executive order." It's got to go through a process, and. Um, 
depending on what it is and depending on what existing law says for policy changes through the different agencies, you have to have, for example, a period of public comment on a lot of these things. So they're actually, they open up on a website, government website, the ability for the public to comment on what the proposed rule change is. That's one that's one. That, that's a rule change. Executive orders, no, the, the president has the ability. You don't need Congress to do them, but you need Congress at least to have the basis in place so that the executive order is somehow uh, implementing some dimension of a law that uh, uh, that already exists. All right. So I hope that's uh, that clarifies that uh, a little bit. Okay, uh, Brandon shut down the pipeline in a day. Trump can can open it uh, in a day. Uh, in as much as reversing that particular decision, it would seem to me yes. Um, anything you know, depending on exactly what it is you're going to do next, there may be additional steps that have to be taken. But in as much as a president can do one thing. Uh, uh, on a given day, the other president can uh, undo it. Unless, again, of course, if it's a matter of um, signing or vetoing legislation, that's different. Then that's where, again, Congress has to come in. But there's a lot of these things are just put uh, under the administrative uh, authority of the executive branch. All right. So speaking of all this, the president did have a rally tonight where he was going over a lot of the things that he's going to put back uh, when he comes back in, in office or when the Republicans come back in office. He was talking about uh, the re, 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 reinstituting um, Title 42, which is uh, 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 being taken away by the, the Biden administration is going to lead later this month to a massive increase in uh, immigrants just uh, just storming through the border. And uh, this he'll be able to put back into place. Catch and release, rem- uh, get, uh, get rid of catch and release. You're, you're apprehending illegals and then just, you know, letting them go back again, letting them, letting them go again. Um, stay in Mexico policy, um, all these various things relating to the border, the the building of the wall. As President Trump reminded us again tonight, it was just three weeks shy of getting completed. Now, they did complete all the, 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 despite the fact that they had to battle for two and a half years, the president was reminding us about this tonight, uh, in the courts to get that wall started. He nevertheless was able to complete all of the original plan for how much wall there was going to be. What happened was as they were building it, they realized other areas along the border that needed fortification. And so the uh, plans for the wall expanded as the wall itself expanded and more work was done. Uh, this, of course, would resume right away. Um, the president did mention in regard to this this disinformation governance board that we talked about a moment ago, that they would immediately um, pull funding uh, from that. Uh, That, of course, needs to be just dismantled for the reasons that we discussed. Uh, There would be lots of other things. Uh, The president talked about critical race theory. Now, he took executive action 
first in the world to ban critical race theory in all the agencies of the government. See, this is what the executive can do. The executive can say in the agencies of the government, okay, which he's the chief executive of, we are not going to do A, B, or C. That's like the executive order that he passed about us as, as clergy and as churches being free to speak our mind in regard to politics. Remember, because that has to do with the enforcement or non-enforcement of the so-called Johnson Amendment that says churches cannot intervene in um, elections. And he said, no, we, this is having a chilling effect on free speech. We're not going to enforce this because we don't want to discriminate against churches. Uh, so uh, similarly, uh, uh, with critical race theory, he took the first action in the world to ban critical race theory in the different um, agencies of the government. And then, of course, to call for broader action around the country, get it out of the school systems, get it out, get it out of the military, get it out of everywhere. Because it's infected all the different, not only the schools, but all the different agencies of government and the military. It doesn't make any sense. Military is not supposed to be talking about critical race theory. It's supposed to be talking about how to make us safe. I, 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 you know, this is just, a, you know, and that's another thing that President Trump spoke about tonight that I want to emphasize. Two, 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 other, two other things. Uh, number one is, what do we talk about in our country today? The president said, this is, a, this is a very important point. Language matters. Language reflects thought. And as Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you want to achieve something, whatever goal you have in life, you've got to talk about it. Because you've got to think about it. If you're thinking about it, you're going to talk about it. If you're thinking and talking about it, you're going to do something about it. And that's the only way you're going to actually achieve something in life. If you're never talking about it, it means you're not thinking about it. It means you're not going to get it done. So he, he asked, well, what do we talk about in America today? He says, we got to stop this, 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 this track that we're on right now, where all we're talking about is race. All we're talking about is how bad our country is and how bad our history was and how we have to cancel out people from the past, tear down their statues and all this, rewrite the history books, all this nonsense. We have to talk about greatness. We have to talk about the greatness of America. We have to talk about the big dreams of freedom and how to make those dreams real. We have to talk about the greatness of our freedom, of our religious freedom, of our educational freedom, of our security. And we have to talk about peace. What do we talk about these days? That was a, a, a key thing. He's brought this up in his rallies before. It was another thing he brought up, very, very um, uh, important as we go into the midterms now, which are only uh, six months away. He said, you know, no state... He was talking about California in particular, but the concept was, you know, California, even California is winnable. You know, we know that there are red states and blue states. There are purple states, you know. We know that there are deep red states and deep blue states that you would never expect 
to change. But all of this is relative. Being deep red, being deep blue, it doesn't mean that it's permanent. It just means that the people of that state right now have decided these matters pretty much ahead of time. But again, you set your sights on something and you you, you determine to change them. Nothing is set in stone. And he said, you know, we got a lot of strong conservative base in California. I see that myself in the pro-life effort. I mean, our organization, Priests for Life, started in California, for goodness sake. So we've got, um, uh, if, if President Trump brought up this idea tonight that, hey, you know, don't, don't write off any particular place. Get moving forward in these elections with a bold determination to change things, even places like California. All right, so let's see what else uh, I'm going to talk to. I do have some things to tell you about uh, Roe versus Wade. Kevin is saying an important question, are we nearing the end of Western civilization? Well, we are on that track for sure. I don't think anyone would uh, would doubt that we are on that track. The, The values, the basic presumptions of civilization are being destroyed the first of which is, of course, the issue I deal with, the right to life itself. You can't have a civilization without preserving the right to life. But, you know, as the president again says in all these rallies, he said it tonight, he said it this way. He says, our country is going to hell, but we can take it back. And so you can expand that. Say, well, Western civilization is going to hell. It's being rejected. But we can take it back. You know what Archbishop Fulton Sheen once said in this regard? He says, the world is tearing up the pictures of what civilization means and what it means to be human. In fact, that's the crisis, really. What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to have life? What does it mean to be a man or a woman? What does it mean to have marriage and family and freedom? What does it mean to be human? So uh, Sheen said, the world is tearing up the pictures of what it means. And then he said, but the church is keeping the negatives. And here's where we have our hope. In fact, I would say even further, the negatives, the template, is written on the human heart, is written in the human spirit. It's in our DNA. So it's never completely lost. Freedom like President Reagan said, it's not passed on in the bloodstream. It has to be defended in every generation, otherwise it gets lost. But the foundation of it is always there. People, in other words, respond when the truth is spoken. It has to be spoken, it has to be defended, it has to be imparted. The distortions of it have to be resisted. But we can always take it back, and we must, we must take it back. Uh, Okay. Uh, Michael is asking, wasn't this Trump rally originally scheduled for Friday and then it got delayed? Yes, exactly. There was bad weather there in Nebraska. And so it got uh, postponed from Friday night to uh, tonight. And that's what happened. Let me share something with you, friends. I don't know if you have this book. I've mentioned it uh, before, but not very recently. Abuse of Discretion. It's by uh, a friend and colleague by the name of Clark Forsyth. He's a an expert pro-life attorney. And um, 
The subtitle of this book is The Inside Story of Roe versus Wade, the Supreme Court case that legalized abortion back in 1973. Abuse of discretion. You know, he brings out some incredible things about Roe versus Wade. I don't know if you've heard some of these things, but did you know that there's no factual record in the Roe v. Wade case? Now think about this for a minute. Usually when a case ends up at the Supreme Court, it has gone through trials. There have been, there's been all kinds of evidence and facts produced and analyzed and cross-examined in lower courts. There's been trials, there's been uh, affidavits and depositions and so things get worked out in the local courts. Things will get when you talk about the federal court system, it starts in the district court. The district court does its work, right? They make a decision. If it gets appealed, it goes to the appellate level, and they collect more information and 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 uh, evidence and testimony. And then from the appellate court. It gets appealed to the Supreme Court and only a very, very small fraction of cases get accepted by the Supreme Court. So Roe v. Wade and its companion case, Doe v. Bolton, Roe coming out of Texas, Doe coming out of Georgia. I knew both women, the Roe and the Doe, uh, very well, actually, personally. They both have passed away. These cases come up. They started in the district court. They went right to the Supreme Court. They skipped the the intermediate appellate level because it just so happens a federal statute was in place at that time uh, that allowed for the attorneys to request that expedited um, method. It's not in place like that anymore, but it's uh, it was taken advantage of by these attorneys. So it skipped the intermediate level. But even so, when it got to the Supreme Court, Let me read here uh, what was said by the attorney for Texas. Let me just go here for a minute. Uh, Because this is really, I mean, listen to this. Jay Floyd, okay, argued the first time Roe was argued. It was argued twice, actually, uh, in in, uh, December of 71 and October of 72. Uh, And it came out in January of 73. Floyd said, the record that came up to this court contains the amended petition of Jane Roe, that was my friend Norma McCorvey, an unsigned alias affidavit. And that is all. All. No other factual record. Attorney for Georgia in the Doe case said, and that again is one of the great problems with this case. Listen to this. We know of no facts. There are no facts in this case. No established facts. Can you get your mind around this? We have a major Supreme Court case on a major issue of American life, and there are no facts. There's no established record. There were no witnesses. I mean, you know, we always tell the story. Norma always would tell the story, and I, I helped her tell her story of how. Um, she never got called into court. She was never uh, put on a witness stand. She never did any of that. Well, that was part of this bigger problem. There were no facts in the cases. 
Now, you might wonder, how on earth can this possibly be? You got to be kidding, right? I mean, this is the kind of thing that strikes you as, you know, this can't be true. How did this end up? Like Patricia is asking, how in the world did, did, did this end up as, as law? Okay, well, technically it's not law. It's just a court decision, okay? And that's, that's the interesting thing here, too. You know, when the Democrats always talk about, we want to codify Roe v. Wade. That means, they're, what they're trying to say is, we want to pass a law allowing abortion. Now, they've tried. They've never been able to do it because abortion is, is not, it's not something that the American people want, at least to the extent that Planned Parenthood and the Democrats want it. So they've never been able to pass a law saying you can have abortion throughout pregnancy, which is the policy that Roe v. Wade ushered in. Remember, there is no federal law right now that would prohibit an abortion of a healthy baby by a healthy mother right up before the, like a, right to the almost very day of birth. There's no limit there by federal law. Neither is there a federal law in place saying that you must be able to do that. Federal law, Congress, Congress has tried both ways to enact pro-life legislation and pro-abortion legislation. Sure, they they have enacted a lot of pro-life and pro-abortion legislation, but not to this to this level, to this extent of actually prohibiting abortion or allowing abortion the way the two sides in the debate want it. So it's not technically a law. It's just a court decision. But still, how did this come about that there was no, 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 uh, none of, none, 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 none of this established body of facts? Well, for a very interesting reason. And this book, again, talks about this in, in quite a bit of detail. There was actually a misunderstanding among the justices of what the Roe v. Wade case was all about and the Doe v. Bolton case. What do I mean? There was a case called Younger versus Harris. This was a case about jurisdiction and procedure, whether a federal court could intervene in a state criminal proceeding. Because remember, we have two different types of government in the United States, right? We've got the state governments. Each state has its own executive, legislature, and court system. So we got 50 states and plus D.C. And then we have the federal uh, system of a legislature, the Congress, an executive, the president, and the court system. Can a federal court, and to what extent can a federal court intervene in a criminal case that's within the state government? It's an important question. It's important constitutional questions involved, which is why the Supreme Court would be the ones to, to sort that out. Okay, now, there were justices at the time that they were deliberating whether to accept the Roe v. Wade case who thought that what the issue was was not abortion and its legality, but rather the procedural issue of whether the federal court could intervene in a state criminal proceeding. Now, if it were just that, there wouldn't need to be that kind of robust factual record 
that usually makes its way up to the court with these cases. There wouldn't need to be if it was just on a procedural matter because the the court does this all the time. They'll decide on a procedural matter without addressing the merit of the case. So in other words, they thought, well, we're not going to decide on the merits whether there's a right to an abortion in the Constitution. No, what we're going to talk about is whether a federal court can intervene in a state criminal proceeding. Those are two very different things. Can you imagine this? That the case was accepted on a misunderstanding of what the heck the court was going to be doing in the first place. This boggles the mind. But that's what happened. So they took the case and they started talking among themselves. And even in the oral arguments, now there were two sets of oral arguments. Listen, you can listen to these oral arguments. The audio of the oral arguments is available. There's a website, Oye, O-Y-E-Z.org. You can get all the Supreme Court cases. You can read the decisions. You can read the briefs. You can listen to and read the oral arguments in all the cases of the Supreme Court. O-Y-E-Z.org. Go to Roe v. Wade. You can listen to it for yourself. It was argued twice, Roe and Doe. As I said, December 71, October 72. The bulk of the arguments were procedural. not on the substance of whether or not abortion should be permitted by the Constitution. What is it in the first place? What's the history of it? What are the medical facts in regard to it? What has our our court system said? What's the history of our country in regard to abortion laws? What would be the implications of permitting it? And on and on and on. There was some superficial discussion of this, but very superficial. And in the decision itself, the history of abortion, in the Roe v. Wade decision, the history of abortion in America is discussed. And the medicine, medical aspects of abortion are discussed. And brothers and sisters, the quality of those discussions and of that information in the Roe v. Wade decision is crap. There is no better way to describe it than that. It is absolute garbage. It has been the history that 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 the Roe v. Wade decision tries to uh, put forward came from the attorney of NARAL, the pro-abortion group for the repeal of abortion laws. Cyril Means is his name. He's no authority. And what he said was completely unprecedented up to that time and has been completely debunked since that time. And that's the history that Roe v. Wade relied on. Trying to say, for example, that the laws against abortion in our country were not for the purpose of protecting the baby in the womb. Yes, they were. And the, and, the, and the courts of the United States where these laws were enacted in most of the states said so. They said, because this was a period of time in the 19th century 
where medical science was, was, was learning about the process of fertilization and the growth of the baby in the womb. And so, of course, it was for the protection of the baby. That's why when they say, oh, it was for the health and safety of the mother. Well, then the obvious question is, why was it a criminal act? Every surgery deals with the health and safety of the, of the patient. Why would only abortion be a criminal act? Because they were trying to stop the taking of a human life. That's why. The history and the medicine of Roe versus Wade are garbage. Garbage. And all you have to do is read a, a book like this, and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. Oh, my goodness. I mean, it, 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 we are... You know, and 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 people come along and say, uh, you know, oh, but most Americans agree with Roe v. Wade. Most Americans have absolutely no idea what Roe v. Wade is, and those who do have somewhat of an idea realize it's garbage. It's also garbage from the constitutional point of view. You see, I'm not even talking here about a moral point of view. Oh, you can get into the morality and the religion and everything. Oh, I'm talking about history. I'm talking about science. And I'm talking about the Constitution. Constitutionally, there is, uh, there are, including even, even Ruth Bader Ginsburg, when she was on the court, as pro-abortion as she was, she realized that there was no constitutional quality argument behind Roe v. Wade. She agreed with the outcome. Many agreed with the outcome, but have the intellectual honesty to see that there's no logical constitutional basis for it. So, And that's what's at issue now in the Dobbs case. What is the constitutional basis for an, uh, a so-called right to abortion? What is it exactly? The other side will say, well, it's liberty as rooted in the 14th Amendment. Excuse me, you think the 14th Amendment saying that no one may be deprived of liberty without due process of law, and by the way, the same amendment says no one may be deprived of life without due process of law. So isn't it interesting that they try to use the 14th Amendment to justify the taking of life without due process of law? Uh, but that's that's another contradiction we'll deal with another time. But, but as far as liberty itself goes, why in the world would the 14th Amendment justify legal abortion when at the time that the 14th Amendment was ratified by the states, remember a constitutional, constitutional amendment has to be ratified by three quarters of the states, not to mention two thirds of the House and the Senate. Why would at that time 30 out of 37 states be prohibiting abortion and at the same time, the same states that pro were prohibiting abortion were ratifying an amendment that purportedly contains a right to abortion. Again, historically, it's garbage what they're trying to say. It makes no sense. And this came up in the Dobbs arguments. This came up in the, in the, in the oral arguments and the briefs. More than one brief. I've read through them all talks about the 14th Amendment and the adoption process of the 14th Amendment. It says it's impossible for any intellectually honest person to say that the 14th Amendment includes a right to an abortion. You see, the word abortion is not in the Constitution, first of all. I mean, absolutely, nobody can dispute that. Just do a word search. 
of the Constitution. Just read through it. It's not a long document. See if you see the word abortion there. It's not there. So the argument the other side has to make in the light of that indisputable fact is that, well, you know, there are various rights that are not. The word itself isn't in the Constitution, but nevertheless, it's implied. Okay, but if it is, this, the courts have a test for that. You can't just say any any right exists even though it's not in the Constitution. No, you've got to have some kind of basis for saying that something is a right protected by the Constitution even if the word isn't in there. You know what that basis is? That it's deeply rooted in the history and traditions of our country. A right to abortion is not deeply rooted in the history and traditions of our country. Just the opposite is true. What is deeply rooted in the history and tradition of our country is the protection of the life of the child in the womb. We inherited prohibitions on abortion from English common law. And then in the colonies, these were made into statutes, not under the rubric of creating new law, but of asserting what the law already was. That's what's in the history and tradition of the country. The prohibition of abortion, not the right to abortion. So in other words, whether you're talking about the text of the Constitution or its structure or the history and tradition of the nation under whose, uh, uh, under which Constitution the nation is living, it's not there. The so-called constitutional right to abortion is not there. The other side has a tough hill to climb if they're going to try to say it's there, but it's repeated over and over as dogma that it is. We've got to, we need to hit a big reset button, don't we, in our thinking about all this. Okay, so a couple of other questions, and then we're going to get to the end of our uh uh, of our comments here. Do we have any other things here that uh, a lot of you are saying a lot of good things? Uh, let's see here. Uh, unnatural. Yes, Mike, it's unnatural to kill the pre-born. Uh, let's pray, Michael says, for the repentance and conversion of our nation. Absolutely. Um, and speaking of that, in an education of the young people, uh, uh, many are many are pointing out too, in regard to that, we have another new resource for you. Our executive director, Janet, you may have seen her on these programs talking about this already, has a brand new book. And it's called Everything You Need to Know About Abortion for Teens. You know, there's an amazing lack of resources like this for teenagers. Amazing lack, even though the pro-life movement has been, you know, for decades producing great pro-life material, but there are precious few resources that we can put in the hands of a teenager and say, here, this was written for you. But this one, Janet, has done exactly that. Uh, so abortionandteens.com is the website where you can learn more about this book and order your copy. Abortionandteens.com. And just like... Um, I do with my books. Janet is gladly signing. Saw her in her office the other day. She had a big, big stacks of all these books. She was personally signing them. She'll sign it for you. Um, check it out. In the middle, we have some fascinating new and beautiful full-color images of the baby in the womb. Uh, and uh, 
we want to introduce teens to that child so that this doesn't become just an abstract issue, but a real person that we are talking about and trying to protect. Michael is saying uh, uh, abortion is the reason we have wars all throughout the world. You know, that's, that's what Mother Teresa was saying. She said the fruit of abortion is nuclear war. That's Mother Teresa. She said the greatest destroyer of love and peace. The greatest destroyer of love and peace is abortion. To some, that might not be immediately evident as to why that's true. But if you think about it from the point of view of of two things, what it does to the human spirit and what it does to the principles of civilization, the principles of civilization all have to be equally protected. In fact, those words are inscribed on the top of the Supreme Court, equal justice under law. You have to have equal protection for everybody. The, The weak have to be protected from the strong. If the strong end up being given a constitutional right to kill the weak, you've changed the kind of government that you have. And John Paul II said in the Gospel of Life encyclical, that's a tyrant state. So it undermines the very fabric of civilization. John Paul said the disintegration of the state begins when you permit something like abortion. The other thing, the other reason the greatest destroyer of love and peace is abortion is what it does to the human heart and the human psyche. You have destroyed the barrier that keeps us from killing the innocent. We all have a, not only a moral, but a psychological, even a physiological barrier to, to, to harming someone, to killing someone. And now when you've got Since Roe v. Wade in America, we've had 63.5 million abortions. Look at the damage we're doing to our own species. The species can survive only when we can respond to the helpless cry of the child. Abortion is blunting our response to the helpless cry of the child. And when humanity can no longer preserve its own species, then you open the door to very destructive warfare. President Trump, let me uh, conclude with this uh, theme that he again reiterated tonight. And by the way, watch his rally. If you didn't see it, we what we do is we broadcast it live on um, PresidentTrumpRallies.com. PresidentTrumpRallies.com. And we um, then have it available. Our staff will get it up there tomorrow, the recorded video. And so you can go there during the course of these next few days, during the course of this week, go to presidenttrumprallies.com and watch that rally from tonight. One of the key points that he made that I want to end with here is this. We have external threats in the world. There are threats to peace in the world. As the we're just talking about war just now, there's the violence in Ukraine and Russia is becoming unhinged and stuff, stuff like that. But those threats are not as big as the threat from within. Lunatic, radical, left-wing fringes within the country. That's the bigger threat. And they have to be stopped. And then President Trump said to the great applause of the crowd, and 
it should be to the cheers of our own minds and hearts that this country doesn't belong to them. It belongs to you. The country, he said, is going to hell, but we can take it back. The radical left fringe inside the country doing so much damage in so many positions of government is the worst threat than external threats, but the country still belongs to you. Take it back by your active participation in these midterm elections. Take it back by your witness to American values. Take it back by your involvement in the pro-life movement. Take it back by your active citizenship and your voice, which you must never let anyone silence for any reason, to any extent, at any time. Don't let anyone ever silence your voice. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this time when we've been reflecting on these very important things. Bless each of us and all the needs we have, all our families and our activities, Lord. And bless these upcoming elections, the most important midterms in our history. Enable us to put a firewall, enable us to put a blockade in the way of the radical left which is trying to destroy our nation, our values, our very civilization. Bless us, Lord, with peace, with joy, with a determination that nothing can stop, with that American spirit that rises up and conquers every obstacle. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'll be with you this week. Now, I'm going to go live in certain days. I don't know if you're morning people, but I'm going to be having some live broadcasts on, I believe it's Tuesday and Thursday at 7 in the morning, Eastern Time. Oh, and by the way, Wednesday night, I'm going to be with President Trump at Mar-a-Lago. So uh, that's going to be a uh, a uh, showing of a movie by our friend Dinesh D'Souza. He's been with me on this program, as has his daughter, Danielle. Uh, 2,000 Mules is the name of the movie. Um You'll be hearing more about that, but that's going to be Wednesday night. But I'll be with you Tuesday morning, Thursday morning, 7 a.m. Eastern time. Of course, we have the mass each day and uh, and uh, and the program each night. Now, I'm with you now, but usually each night, 8 o'clock p.m., I have Praying for America. I hope you join me for that program regularly as well. So may the Lord bless you, bless all your prayer intentions, your families and your activities in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for joining me, friends. God bless you, and we will talk to you tomorrow. This has been the End Abortion Podcast. To learn more, to help end abortion, and to connect with us on social media, visit endabortion.net.